Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Climate change is in the news. A climate-fueled hurricane is about to hit the East Coast. The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez scolded world leaders yesterday for not doing enough on climate. He said the time has come for our leaders to show they care about the people whose fate they hold in their hands. He said we run the risk of missing the point where we can avoid runaway climate change. Meanwhile, the Trump administration is about to make it easier for fossil fuel companies to release the dangerous greenhouse gas methane into the air. One of the places that is making a strong effort on sustainability is the port city of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. The mayor of Rotterdam, Ahmed Abutalab, is in Chicago. He's speaking at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about Rotterdam's efforts on sustainability and growth, and he's here in the studio with me. Welcome to Chicago, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. When I read about Rotterdam, it seems to have really ambitious targets. Every time I hear about climate change, I was reading that you personally want every new building to be carbon neutral in Rotterdam. Can you explain where you're at? Um, uh, We're not only ambitious. We have to. Uh, We own as a city the largest port in Europe, serving 500 million of uh, inhabitants in Europe. Uh, So you might know the German economy is uh, heavily dependent on the port of Rotterdam. Sometimes uh, I joke that without the port of Rotterdam, no Mercedes. (laughs) All types of materials needed for making a Mercedes are transshipped in the port of Rotterdam for the German economy. And we pollute the Netherlands as a city having the port with 17% of the total amount of CO2 emissions in the Netherlands are emitted in Rotterdam, 17.17. That is a high degree of pollution. So we have to do something about that. So we're working on capturing CO2 emissions, making them liquid, and then through a pipeline, bring it to the North Sea and store it in the form of gas fields. That is a project that we're working on it. The other issue is to provide sustainable energy to the port by building onshore and offshore a lot of windmills. The largest one is going to produce 10,000 megawatts of electricity, which is a huge uh, windmill recently commissioned in the city of Rotterdam. We would like to disconnect the existing houses from the gas pipelines. And Hang on a second. Yeah. That would be like a sacrilege around here yeah. because everybody gets gas in their house yeah. and that nobody can even imagine a politician calling for disconnect. I think that's the ambition of the city of Rotterdam. We have for free a lot of hot water coming from the petrochemical sites in the port of Rotterdam. We have the largest petrochemical refineries in the port. They produce hot water as a residue, which now pump into the river. Uh, We're now collecting this hot water through a pipeline, seven kilometers large, bring it to the southern part of Rotterdam and heat 40,000 houses in that area. So we disconnect the houses and bring the hot water in as a substitute for gas. And cooking, you may use electricity. And we know that a lot of CO2 emissions in constructed environment, houses, for instance, is caused by heating in the winter. And now we're talking about when we build new houses in Rotterdam, the ambition next four years is to build 20,000 new houses, is to build them completely eco-friendly, disconnected from gas, and they will be insulated to a degree that they maybe will produce electricity instead of using electricity. That's a very technical issue, but it's the ambition that we're working on it. We need, of course, a change of the national law, and for that reason, I'm in person lobbying the national government to do so. 
How did you get the mindset to do this and the kind of clout? Because in this country, I mean, we've got President Trump today, you know, letting more methane gas yeah. out because he thinks that's good for the economy, yeah. that that is the way that he's going to get more growth and things are going to be better. If I have a half an hour to speak to Mr. Trump, I will try to explain to him, and I will, I think, be successful in explaining to him, not only as a mayor, but also as an engineer, that working on climate issues, that is the new economy. That's the new jobs. If I succeed in insulating 300,000 houses in my city and bringing solar systems on the roofs and bringing other cables in it and uh, storing the electricity and filtering the rainwater to the degree you can drink it and so on and so on, that seems abracadabra, high-level, sustainable thing. But this is practical, new economy, hands-on people that need this type of jobs to do the work. So if we miss this opportunity, we miss really a chance to transform our economy to the next phase of economy. I don't know whether you know it or not, but there is a revolution going on. There is a revolution going on moving towards the new thing. Do you know that the whole humanity moved from the Stone Age period, not because there were no stone anymore. There's still a lot of stones in the world. Well, we moved from the Stone Age to the Steam Age because there was an intrinsic motivation for people to do so. And we are now moving from carbon-oriented economy. Whether people like it or not, we are moving to the next stage, which will be a sustainable sources of electricity. So that's going on. And if you miss that chance and you keep oriented on the former war, you maybe will win the former war, but that doesn't exist anymore. Ask Napoleon. He can tell you that in all the historic books. So the future is the new economy, and the new economy means new jobs. I'm talking with the mayor of Rotterdam, Ahmed Abu Talab, and he is in Chicago speaking at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about Rotterdam and sustainability. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll talk with community peacemakers about their celebrations for the International Day of Peace. It seems like you've created a climate in Rotterdam about sustainability and about innovation. How do you get something like that going? How do you foster this kind of thinking and create a virtuous cycle? Keep talking. That's the only thing a mayor can do. Keep talking. Keep explaining. You know, people tend to be always conservative when new things are coming, and people are always afraid to lose the, the environment they are familiar with. So making a step to something different is always different. The only thing we have to do is when we make this step forward, that we have to explain to the people with a small wallet that this transformation is for them also acceptable. There will be a gap between the amount of money needed to make the transformation, but they will not suffer from that transformation, which is always really important. So this is not a, a staff for the happy few, for the people with money. We need interventions of not a big government, but a solid and strong government aside with the business community to make that transformation happen. That is my message to my citizens. So try to bring this theme as a sexy theme, not a boring theme with a lot of uncertainties, but bring to bring secure elements in it because people hate uncertainty when it comes to the, their own income and their own position. For instance, people that work in the port. We have to explain to them if they are working in a carbon-oriented economy that the next jobs will be for them. Are there examples of lower-income jobs that are created by this new economy and innovation? Well, follow my message, sir. When I'm talking about bringing the hot water from the port to these neighborhoods, it's all low-skilled labor. It's digging in the ground. It's bringing pipelines in the ground. It's connecting pipelines. Um, it's covering the pipelines. It's connecting the pipelines to the houses. 
this is just a low-skilled labor can be done with people with some years of vocational training, that's all. We're not talking about engineers. This is a simple hands-on labor. That's really important for my city, of which we have a lot of people living from social security benefits. This is a source of income that can help people really to find a paid job. How are you doing on dropping that big number if you're doing 17% of the Netherlands' carbon output? Is that going down? Yeah, it's a combination. of It used to be 19%, we're now on 2%, thanks to closing one of the coal-fired power sessions. Um, we're now heading to close the next two in 2030. And in the meantime, we'll work on a major project in the port, which is oriented on capturing CO2 emissions in the refineries. We have five big refineries to capture the CO2 emissions, making it liquid and put it in a pipeline and then pump it to the former gas fields in the ocean. Um, we offered, uh, which I did myself to the Minister President of the Northern Westphalia in Western Germany, the offer to help to work with us to bring the CO2 emissions even from Germany to that pipeline for the years ahead. Well, I'm expecting that the financial decision to build this pipeline will be made next year by the Port Authority of Rotterdam, which is part of the city government. So that is a very important element, mitigation on one side and adaptation on the other side collectively will mean that we reduce the CO2 emissions tremendously. I'm talking with Ahmed Abutalab. He is the mayor of Rotterdam and he's in Chicago speaking at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs about Rotterdam's efforts on sustainability and growth. Coming up in a few minutes, I'll speak with community peacemakers about their celebrations for the International Day of Peace. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the man that probably most people listening, if you were to ask them, who's the most famous person in the Netherlands, who do you know, they would say Gert Wilders, mm -hmm. the blonde-haired, mm -hmm. uh, far-right person who you've got a long history with. Mm -hmm. He chimes in about you and says all sorts of things about Islamization. He doesn't like that you have a passport from Morocco. Yeah. Well, how do you explain Gert Wilders to people in the U.S.? Gil Wilders is a politician, is representing a political party in the Netherlands. He has the right to do so. He has um, uh, one fundamental theme, and that is that Islam uh, is not a religion but an ideology, uh, which we have to fight from Europe and the free Western Europe. And if you ask him, but what about the guy Abu Talib in, in Rotterdam, the mayor of Rotterdam, then probably his answer will, but, but that, that is another Muslim. That's another type of Muslim. Uh, I mean, he is um, a politician. And Islam and Islamization of Europe and the world is his theme, and that's it. He is doing his work in Parliament, um, talking about this issue, and he has the right to put this theme on the agenda if he wants to do so. So the country where Mr. Wilders exists is also the country where Mayor Abu Talib, Muslim mayor of the city of Rotterdam, also exists and is running a city and making daily difference to the citizens' life. Um, I cannot say more about that. That's Mr. Wilders. He was just involved in a, another contest for a Muhammad cartoon kind of thing that got people really upset in Pakistan, and there were marches against it, and uh, he backed down, and he's funded by mm -hmm. people in the United States. There are mm -hmm. people in the mm -hmm. U.S. who help uh, fund his mm -hmm. well-being. Yeah. Um, what kind of creature is this? What kind of thing is going on here? Because this is something that's happening in, in all countries. Mm -hmm. We all have uh, Gert Filder's type now. And they're all doing pretty well in the polls, and yeah. they're gluing together. Well, that is the phenomenon that we call democracy. Um, and I'm a social democrat and a democrat in my heart, and uh, I accept all voices, including this voice. 
Mr. Wilders is working on the theme of, of the Islam and Islamization. Uh, that is his political thing, his only political thing. So he, when he came with an uh, idea of uh, a cartoon uh, inviting the cartoonists to come to his space in the parliament and to do something uh, with cartoons and, and the Prophet Muhammad. And then we saw two things, uh, heavy reactions in Pakistan and no reactions in the Netherlands. We have more than one million Muslims in the Netherlands. No reaction. It's, I think, important to notice that. Why no reaction? Because the Muslims in the Netherlands know the agenda of Mr. Wilders. If he is a couple of months out of the publicity, then he comes up with a stunt, and then there is a lot of publicity for his work. But the Dutch Muslims, they know that. No reaction whatsoever. So the idea is, if he wants the cartoonists to do something, let them go. Well, they learned to accept how such a thing is working in the Dutch politics. Unfortunate, these Muslims in Pakistan, far away, have no idea of the political circumstances in the Netherlands, react somehow, in my opinion, excuse me, the word, uh, somewhere primitive on his uh, uh, cry to cartoonists to come to support him in doing some cartoons about Prophet Muhammad. But in the Netherlands, nobody reacts from the Islamic community uh, heavily on that is no demonstrations, no writings, a lot of columnists wrote about that, but nobody else. And I think that says something about the emancipation of the Muslims in the Netherlands. It's an issue throughout Europe, uh, integration of uh, new immigrants, of uh, Muslim immigrants, and the Swedish elections were just, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. a place, and there's all this talk about integration, integration. Do you have any advice? Well, integration is a two-side story. The first one is um, when you arrive voluntarily, like I did in 1976 to the Netherlands, then you have to do the major step to learn the new society, to learn the language, to know something about the local culture, the history, which is really important. The, the Second World War in the Netherlands is a tremendous thing. So we have to learn something about that. Rotterdam got flat. Rotterdam got uh, bombarded by the Germans as the Twin Towers, uh, we're talking today, 9-11, is, uh, have been hit by mad people and sick people uh, with a lot of casualties. So uh, knowing the language, the culture, and the history is really important to become part of the new society. So they have to do so. But the existing society, the people in the city or in the country, must help you by making some space for you to come in. It's like riding on a highway. Um, if nobody allows you to merge, you will not merge. So it's both things. It's having a good driver license to merge, and the other ones should make some space. And I should say that is not only the issue in, in Western Europe. I'm observing the position of the black community in the U.S. for many years now, and I came to the U.S. since uh, 1991, and still the black community in the United States is facing a lot of troubles uh, in terms of social economic integration, um, social cultural integration, and being part of the society. So integration takes a lot of time. I was working with Statistics Netherlands for a couple of years, and it's there what I learned that it takes three generations under normal circumstances before any carpenter's family, the first one, become a doctor. Hmm. Uh, so social economic certification takes a lot of time And when it comes to the integration of the Muslims in the Netherlands, we're talking about 50 years. So ask me that question again about 50 years, but I'm expecting they would not be on earth. Ahmed Abitalab is the mayor of Rotterdam. He's in Chicago at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, talking about sustainability and growth. Thanks a lot for joining me. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for the invitation. 
The International Day of Peace is coming up on September 21st. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk with people who are building peace in their communities. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The International Day of Peace is coming up on September 21st. If you believe in peace, there's lots of events and ways to participate. We're going to talk now with three peacemaking organizations about what they're doing in their communities, and we're going to get to know them one at a time here. And first of all, let's talk with Angela Hicks. She's executive director of Margaret's Village in Inglewood. Great to have you, Angela. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell us a little about Margaret's Village. It's got an interesting history. It really does. Um, Margaret's Village... Uh, is a new name for an old agency. We've been in existence for about 44 years. We were founded in 1974 by Sister Margaret Traxler, who was sort of a radical um, nun. And when I say radical, I just mean that she really had a heart and a passion for social justice. And if she saw injustice anywhere, she acted on it immediately. And um, She marched with Martin Luther she King. She marched with Martin Luther King. Um, she worked in women's prisons, changed the culture there, and she saw uh, after the women got out of prison that there was a need for women um, to be housed, women were homeless who had never done anything wrong. And so she petitioned Cardinal Bernadine, and he gave her some property in Inglewood, the old St. Carthage Parish, and at that time, Maria Shelter was born. We were initially supposed to be a shelter for single women. The first woman who showed up was eight and a half months pregnant. So in a couple of weeks, we were a shelter for <laughs> women and children. <laughs> and you've got, you have 100 beds now? Is that we true? do. We do. We have 50 beds at Maria Shelter, which primarily serves uh, women and single women and women with children. And we have a shelter on 95th and Commercial called Believe. And that's for intact families. And when I say intact families, I mean that if a dad is attached to that family, then he's able to stay there as well. Tell me about some of the people you encounter and meet and what their circumstances are and uh, what happens to them after they've been in the program. I meet people um, for that just uh, cover the spectrum. I have people who have never um, finished elementary school, and then there are people with advanced degrees who um, have somehow suffered uh, life. Uh, Life happened, and they find themselves in this moment at this time uh, without a place to live. Um, We, I'm very fond of letting them know um, that this current condition that they're experiencing is not going to be their conclusion in life. And what we do is we help them to find their strength, help them to see that they have within them to make it, and that they have what's needed to turn their lives around. We do that through a variety of ways, uh, through case management. We're primarily a case management-driven program, and our case managers act like brokers going all over the city to find unneeded services. Our primary goal 
goal is to connect people with housing. Um, we like to say that we're going to house those who uh, have been having trouble being housed anyplace else, um, but we're going to stick with them. Housing first. Housing first. That uh, You hear that throughout the city quite a bit. And, uh, and so that's, you know, one of our models. That's the underlying uh, reason why we're here. On Saturday, you're having a resource fair, and this will be a example of what you're talking about. It's get connecting people with things they need. Right. We are located in you know on the south side in two communities, um, South Deering and in Inglewood. And every weekend you hear about horrible things that have happened in Inglewood. But there are many wonderful things that happen in Inglewood. And sometimes the people who live in Inglewood don't know about these resources and these activities. And so what I'm trying to do is bring people, um, bring these resources all together in one place so that people have a chance to see them, hear them, and hopefully sign up for these activities. I'm looking for alternatives to Violence, and I'm looking to uh, for alternatives to idleness um, because I believe that idleness um, eventually leads to death. Um, with younger people, they wind up, if they have nothing to do, uh, they wind up um, doing something that they're not supposed to do, and then we hear about them on the news. Um, with older people, idleness can lead to isolation, and then um, they eventually submise because they feel that they have no value. At Margaret's Village, we also have a senior citizen center, um, and seniors from the community come three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, and just have a great time. And there they find that they still have a voice and that they still have something to contribute to society. Angela Hicks is executive director of Margaret's Village in Inglewood and South Deering. And there you can see their website, uh, margaretsvillage.org. And the resource fair is on Saturday. Also with me is Sister Donna Liette, and she is with uh, Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation Center in the Back of the Yards community. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. And you are completely cranked up about International Peace Day at uh, at Precious Blood. You've got uh, a, a a neighborhood yoga celebration barbecue going on right on Peace Day. <laughs> yeah, we, we're celebrating the whole week. Uh, we really want to, um, you know, we do this every day. It's not just for a week or a day, but we want to really create a culture of peace. And so all of our activities are really focused on being ambassadors of reconciliation. And through reconciliation, we believe we bring about peace. So you've got a peace garden, a peace labyrinth, and a peace fountain. <laughs> we do. Uh, when I came here nine years ago to Precious Blood, uh, there wasn't a flower anywhere and no labyrinth. And I said, can we, you know, have a, a peace garden, plant a flower? And so it has really grown over these eight years into a place where we have the labyrinth where mothers particularly who have lost children to violence can come and walk and find some kind of peace. It's a spiritual tool. Um, we also have a peace fountain. We have peace flowers. We have a peace circle. So it is a peace garden where people find in the community kind of an oasis. You specialize in restorative justice. And how did you get into that? And can you explain what you're doing uh, at Precious Blood? Well, I think uh, having worked uh, in the prison system somewhat with um, in Dayton, Ohio, I directed a home for women coming out of prison and realized that our system is very punitive and when I heard about this whole idea of restorative justice, where relationships could be restored, and instead of going into the courtroom and we look at, you know, what was the harm done and how difficult can, how much can we punish it 
this person and for how long. And to see an alternative to that, to say, you know, can we bring those persons, the victims and offenders together and see what was the harm done that the victim has a chance to talk about, you know, the harm that was done. And then also the perpetrator, the offender, can also talk about what brought them to that place of committing a crime or or harming someone else. And when you see the trauma that, you know, has these persons sometimes have experienced in their own early life, we begin to understand as we hear the stories and uh, reconciliation can come about and peace, therefore, can come about. Can you give us an example of that happening in, in your circles? Well, we have a number of those, uh, particularly one I believe that uh, was very um, powerful to me uh, among them was we had a, a professional person whose home had been broken into uh, by four young men. And so... Um, we, when the young men went to court, uh, the judge said, you know, if you'd like to sit in a circle of reconciliation, uh, that would be an alternative to be incarcerated. And the young man said, yes, I think I would like to do that. So after a lot of preparation with the mother and the son and with the, also the uh, professional person whose har- home was harmed, uh, they came together in a circle at Precious Blood. And through the whole ritual of uh, reconciliation, the uh, the professional person began to hear the story of this young man, that what he had also been going through. But he also had a chance to really talk about the harm that had been done to him, and particularly he had a son. And it really hurt him so badly to think that his son no longer felt safe. And so as the circle went on and on, and just to say it briefly, at the end of the circle, after about an hour and a half, this professional person was able to go over to the young man who had broken into his home and destroyed quite a bit of property, said to him, you know, I'm not only a professional person, I'm not only um, a father, but I'm also a coach. And I understand you like to play basketball. Here's my number. I'd love to shoot baskets with you. That's a great story. Isn't it a beautiful story of reconciliation? I'm talking with Sister Donna Liette from Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation Center. They specialize in uh, restorative justice in the back of the yards community. And we're talking about things for International Peace Day, which is coming up on September 21st. And you have a bunch of things happening you know, just this week. Uh, Sister Helen Prejean is coming to yes, your Yes, she is uh, this Friday mm-hmm, for breakfast with us. And she is um, uh, available to uh, talk about. You know, she's done amazing work with death row right. over the years, mm-hmm. and films the death made penalty. about her. Um, you're also doing a outdoor mass and taco lunch, which is your main fundraiser. Uh, that's coming up uh, in a couple weeks. Yeah, October 14th. Thank you for promoting that. <laughs> I'm glad for uh, for people to know about this. You've got to. You've got to make this work somehow, and a taco lunch seems like a good way to do it. Yeah, and we bring our community together. It's right there at our site in uh, 5114 South Elizabeth. And we bring our donors, our funders, our supporters together with our community, and it's a wonderful celebration. We're talking with people who are making peace in their community as Precious Blood is and uh, Precious Blood. uh, Your website is your acronym, pbmr.org. Correct. Mm -hmm. Also on the line with us is um, Pastor Donna Arnold, and she's minister at CTC Glory of the Ladder House Ministries. And thanks very much for joining us, Pastor Donna Arnold. Hello, Jerome. How are you? Very good. Um, tell us about uh, CTC, Glory of the Ladder House Ministries, and, and what you're doing to bring peace. Oh, wow. What a great opportunity uh, to come and be with you all. I, we are a faith-based ministry, 
we've existed for over 37 years. And 37 of those years, excuse me, 35 of those years, we've been in the Inglewood and Back of the Yards community. We're a grassroots organization, so we take the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ. And our, um, our core values are really dealing with people, to love them, to be the hands of Christ physically in this land. And, and Galatians 6 and 1 really says it great. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin or who have uh, by the spirit, you should restore that person in the spirit of meekness, being gentle. And so we use a lot of scripture base to reach the masses and to restore. We we also along uh, uh, the lines of restorative justice uh, for our community. Uh, our women's department, our men's department, everyone has a uh, source and an outreach to touch the community. If it doesn't touch the community, we don't want to be involved in it because we don't want to uh, lose the commission to go into all the world and, and, and preach the gospel and minister. But we have an opportunity to do some great work in Inglewood, and we're thankful for that. I was looking at your Facebook page and saw you doing a straight-up food giveaway. You have a pantry. You just open it up and, and bang. Anybody who wants it gets it. Oh, yeah. It was great. We partnered with some great people. And about two weeks ago, we gave away 20, 000, over 20,000 pounds of food uh, to our community. Needless to say, the lines were long and the people were so thankful and grateful. And, uh, you know, this is one of the ways that we show the love of Christ. This is one of the ways that we show our commitment to this community. We have not just started doing this. We've been doing this for over 37 years, uh, touching hearts, touching lives and and uh, it, it's powerful uh, what does peace building mean to you uh, what, how do you how do you identify that what is that how do you define it wow you know I, I really don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to talking about peace uh, you know Colossians in the book of Colossians tells us, let the peace of Christ rest in our hearts. And this is a part of who we are. We're here to reconciliate man back to God, back to himself. And in doing that, you're putting families back together. So we really uh, do a lot of scriptural based uh, ministry that really shows the heart of what God uh, had purpose man to be. And that was reconciled back to him. So, um, can that you, is uh, one of the ways. Yes, go ahead. Can you tell me a story about some of the people you're working with? Oh, wow. So many great stories down through the years, uh, like um, my sister Donna there and uh, uh, where we have had encounters. But one uh, really kind of comes to mind. We we have a, a halfway house that's not too far from our ministry, and we have what we call a Jericho Walk. A Jericho Walk is we walk in our community and we give open prayer on the streets uh, to people of all walks of life. We, we, we're on the bus stops. We're encountering you at the, at the corner store. We're just very much engaged. And so long uh, story, we, this is a particular building that had had a lot of bad conflict, uh, you know, with violence and just drug activities. And we would go by every Tuesday and lay hands on this building and just pray, you know. Of course, they didn't really want us to come in, but they couldn't stop us from praying on the outside. And so this one particular day, uh, a young lady stepped out uh, while we were praying and uh, she encountered us and and asked for personal prayer. So we began to pray with her, uh, uh, you know, about some things that she had going on. Well, 
little did we know that, you know, she was going through some really hard places in her life and, and it was time. And I, I credit to just being persistent and staying on uh, the, the call of peace and, call, and, and the call to service in our community. We were in the right place at the right time. Needless to say, she came to ministry and, and began to get healing and get counseling. And, you know, we've been able to feed, clothe, many, many. But this particular story sticks out because it just happened about two weeks ago. And, uh, but this is something that we see all the time. And I agree with the young lady that spoke prior. There are some great things that's going on in Inglewood and in the back of the yards. And I'm honored to partner with the ladies um, that are on this uh, program, along with other people, countless that touch our lives that we can touch other people's lives. So, you know, just being in the right place at the right time, it makes a difference. I'm talking with Pastor Donna Arnold. She's the minister at CTC Glory of the Ladder House Ministries. And also with me is Angela Hicks, the executive director of Margaret's Village in Inglewood, and Sister Donna Liette from Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation Center in the Back of the Yards community. I wonder if each of you um, have some thoughts about, um, you know, creating this positive element that uh, Pastor Donna was talking about uh, that really um, lifts people up. If you're going to create peace, you've got to have a, have a good place for people to go. Um, is, is there a positive story that, uh, that people should hear more often um, coming from communities that are pretty torn up? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for myself that, um, you know, we really provide a safe place. I often say with the mothers who've lost children to violence that, you know, just that they have a safe place that they can come and uh, tell their stories and support one another. You know, when they've lost children, it's a very sad thing, and they're isolated, and they're afraid, and then another woman reaches out to them, and that often happens. So I think that's the beautiful stories of uh, women connecting with one another in their pain. And actually, mothers who've uh, forgiven the persons who took the lives of their sons— you know, it's always very touching to me that they're able to say, give that person the minimum because I believe in forgiveness. I think it's incumbent upon um, all of us um, to let everyone know that we have peace within us and to let that peace come out. It's not very popular to be peaceful. Um, games are about how many people you can kill. Uh, that, you know, and, that, and that's popular and you go and you pay twenty nine ninety five and you buy that. Um, but the reality is, is that we have to be peace. So we have to pull that peace out. We have to show people. We have to nurture that. And it can happen. We have to change the the fabric of the of, of the community, the mindset. It is uh, it, it is internal, um, but we have to bring it out. And when you bring it out, it can become contagious. Um, but we have to have people who are willing to do the work, they're willing to walk with someone where they are to help them to see that they have light within them, and that that light is bright and can be shined for many many miles. Angela Hicks is executive director of Margaret's Village. You can find out more information at their web- website, margaretsvillage.org. Uh, Sister Donna Liette is with Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation Center in the Back of the Yards community. They're at PBM pbmr.org and uh, thanks very much Pastor Pastor Donna Arnold for joining us by phone with CTC Glory of the Ladder House Ministries I was on your Facebook page mostly um, I enjoyed (laughs) being there and seeing everyone uh, in the community you're working with 
<laughs> Thank you, Jerome. Thank, Thank you very much for talking about International Peace Day. It's coming up on September 21st, and hopefully people will uh, do something to make some peace in their own lives and community. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about a new one-man show at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater. It features some of the most revered speeches in history. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Our friends here on the Navy Pier at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater are presenting a new one-man performance. It has the catchy name Big Mouth, and it is the Big Mouth is here with me. His name is Valentin Denez. He is the director and performer, and he does the miraculous thing of weaving together some of the most revered speeches in history in one evening of theater. Thanks for joining me. Uh, my pleasure to be here. Tell me a little about yourself. You're, you're from Belgium, and you started your own theater company. That's right. So I finished uh, drama school in Antwerp. That's where I live in Belgium. I, I finished uh, the Royal Conservatory in 2000 and started my own company together with my classmates. So it's not my own company in a way. And we have this kind of, we call it a collective. I don't know if you're familiar, if you have an, in, 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 in Chicago some collectives. <laughs> it means we don't work with directors. We don't work with set designers. We all do it ourselves. Um, and... That's the way we've been doing things. And then this monologue called Big Mouth, which is the first part, I also made a, a second part called Small War, was actually the first time that I did something just on my own. So not with my my fellow uh, students from the drama school who are now also in their 40s, but <laughs> just me. And I really wanted to challenge myself if I was able to just do something myself, like do everything myself and that's how Big Mouth uh, started. And so you thought a good challenge would be uh, weaving together the most revered speeches in all of history. Well, I, I've always <laughs> been – it's a strange idea maybe, but I've always been fascinated like when I was 16 years old just in the power of words. It's not – to me, it's not so much about politics while most people view this show as a very political show. But to me, it's more about that we're the only species that are able just by opening our mouth to change world history. And that, that has always amazed me. And I, I remember when I was 16 years old in school, we were taught the, the Goebbels speech, the Totalen Krieg, the Total War speech, which was at the end of the Second World War. And it just amazed me when we studied it, how it was put together and how well it, it is put together. It's also in the show now. Uh, a bit of this uh, speech, I guess that's where it started, this fascination for the power of, of words, of opening our mouth and change millions of people in, in a different direction. How did you decide what uh, speeches and sermons and eulogies to put into Big Mouth? Well, just by intuition. But I have to say, to be able to do it by intuition, you have to... I, I've been collecting speeches for over a year. In, like in that, 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 that final year before I made the show, I decided to read at least one speech a day, just read them at random. And I, I read over a thousand speeches just during that year and just put them on stacks in the hope that someday they would start communicating with one another. <laughs> and, and for instance, I had this uh, 
uh, King Baudouin, the king of the Belgians in, in, the, in the 90s, who refused to sign this abortion bill. We, we have uh, uh, the, the right to do abortion like from the 90s on. And he, he, was, uh, he had to uh, stop being king because he didn't want to sign the law. And then like two months uh, further, I, I, I read the speech of the independence of Congo where the young King Baudouin was there talking about all these mass murders. So he, he refused to sign this, the essence of life, really. He refused to sign that because he was very Catholic. And on the other hand, like uh, 30 years before, he was really uh, trying to defend uh, the colony of, of Congo and, and the mass murders that were part of it. So and these, a little so bit these speeches so, did start talking yes, to each other. That's that's how the whole show finally got together. Well, uh, you're going to do a little bit for us. And yep. um, the one-man show is called Big Mouth. It's at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. And Valentin Dinez is going to do a little bit of some of the many revered speeches in history that he weaves together in the show. Yes, I'll, I'll just do a little bit of the beginning of the show. It's actually two people who were convicted to death. Uh, one is Sacco of Sacco and Fanzetti, 1927, yeah. uh, Italian immigrants. And the other one is Socrates. It's one of the oldest speeches in there who was also sentenced to death uh, because he, re he refused to say he had a bad influence on children. Uh, I'll, I'll do just a little bit of the show so, so people have an idea how it goes. I, I never know, never heard anything so cruel as this court. Se seven years of prosecuting. I, 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 I know my, my sentence, my sentence will be between two classes, the oppressed class and the rich class. That's, that's why I hear today court box because I oppress class. You are oppressor. You, sir. I, I, I am no speaker. I'm, I know my speak not not good. You know everything, Mr. Judge. You know all my life, and here I am again after seven years of prosecuting me and my poor wife. Now, now, now you you want me execute? I I I would like to keep life. Men of Athens, I honor you and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. You may acquit me or not. I shall never alter my ways, even if I should have to die. Many times. If you let me be killed, you won't easily find another one like me, who during his life never sought material gain or bodily fulfillment. I, I never stolen ever, never, never kill ever, never spill blood ever. Every, every, everyone who knows these two arms knows very well. I, I do not need to kill men to make money. I, I with my two hands can live very. Very well live. I, I have fought, battled against crime and law and church. Make me good, normal. I, I, I do not wish to a dog or to a snake, would I? So that's it. The hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways. I to die, you to live. Which is better? Hmm. God only knows. Valentin Dinez doing some of his one-man show, Big Mouth. At, it's at Chicago Shakespeare Theater now. Uh, it's, it's very powerful when you weave it together. It does, they do speak to each other. Well, in a way, what I'm trying to make clear is all the different, the art of rhetorics, what, what are different uh, sides of it. And like in this one, you have two, two people uh, convinced to death sentence. One doesn't speak the language very well. It was an Italian immigrant. And the other one was one of the rhetoric masters of his time uh, uh, during the ancient Greeks. And I just by putting them together... I, 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 I guess you get to see what, what language really means and how it works. 
you get to do a lot of voices too. It sounds like you're, you're doing accents and people you, who obviously we have no idea what Socrates sounded like. So you can pretty much have free yeah. reign there. But uh, and you'd use a lot of microphones in doing this. You've got a um, yes. a technical thing going. Well, th- there's like I think nine microphones involved with a different ca- characteristic. Uh, I don't know how you pronounce characteristics. Them. That's it, characteristics. Uh, but um, we also use loop stations. So, and in between the speeches, I actually do songs to to build a time frame of where I'm going to. Like, I have this whole uh, civilian right movement that I'm going into, and just before I I do, I want to live in America. You know the the song, and I, I build it up in loops to first the baseline. So, like in between the speeches, uh, people also have some time to just think of what they just heard and prepare for what is coming next. So it's all everything is done with my mouth, with one mouth. That's why it's called big mouth. But uh, it's, it, it uses a lot of techniques. It's, there's a lot of uh, computer samples involved and stuff. How did you get to the point where you, did you envision this as all out of your mouth when you started this yes, thing? Yes, that was the, like the first idea was everything I'm going to do the music. I'm going to do yeah, all of yeah. it. It has to all come out of my mouth. Uh, Tell us about how the show's been received. You've done this at some interesting places. It, it caught people's attention. Uh, you're obviously here now. It's uh, that's well, that's the most amazing thing. I I guess for me, because it's a monologue, it's quite easy to tour it around. It's not that expensive, and I come in so many places, and and people react very differently. Um, especially like here in America, like the end of the show is like it's all American, and and. I I stop with 9/11. That's like the, the last speech that's in there. I mixed it up with the Katrina speech, so it's it's quite a, a sensitive thing. Uh, but it's uh, Osama bin Laden is also in there. So when I did it the first time in New York, it it was just two blocks away from where it happened, and for some reason I didn't think of it. And I, it wasn't until the first show that I actually realized that probably some people in the audience who who have lost friends uh, in in nine eleven or something. So and suddenly I felt a bit like this European is coming here to America trying to say people what they should think of this and this. So it's 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 always a very tense thing for me to do to play it in different parts of the world. Um, but that makes it very exciting for me. Valentin Denez, director and performer of Big Mouth at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. It is part of a series of events that has to do with Belgium. And Doreen Saig is here. She is uh, the general manager of international and special projects at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Good to see you, Doreen. Nice to see you, too. What's the framework here? How did you get all involved in Belgium? Well, the work coming out of Belgium right now is is really exciting, and I think it's it's not work that we're really seeing in Chicago. And part of the the mission of our World Stage series is really to bring in artists and work um, that Chicagoans will connect with that they don't know that they that, that that's out there. Um, and so we're we're really excited to bring this trio of very very different shows, but work that speaks to. A, who we are as humans in in really different ways and through a a specific cultural lens. 
So your series is called Big in Belgium, and uh, Big Mouth is one of them. The other two are uh, the other two. Um, uh, the first one is the first one is Big Mouth. The second one is a group from Belgium called On True On True, and they do a project called Fight Night. That's really giving the audience um, the opportunity to explore their participation in a, in a democracy um, and how and they sort of learn about themselves as they participate. Uh, and then the second is a two hander called Us Them. Um, and that's from a company called Bronx looking at um, the school siege in Beslan um, from the perspective of oh, two wow. of the of the students. Wow. Um, Valentin, do you know these guys? Do you want to give them a I review? I, uh, it's it's amazing. <laughs> no, no. It's really one of the best shows I saw in the last years. Uh, Fight Night, I was involved in it. So that's not really uh, really – uh, to me to say but it's it's a very fun show as well that's important to say you yes. get you get a voting uh, thing a remote and Machine, you, you get yeah. to vote the whole show and you you decide how the show in what direction it goes is that fight night or that yeah that's fight night i'm talking about now all right um it's that's really exciting it's it's very thought-provoking but also very fun mm -hmm. and us them i just saw like the first time now two years ago it's uh it's such an extraordinary piece by these two people and it, it I think it's very daring as well because it's also addressing a, a younger audience mm -hmm. to talk about uh, terror in this uh, way and what happened in this school. It, I really every, anyone that that, that, that is, in, uh, is, is around me I, I advise always to, to, to go and see the show. It's really amazing. All right, there are packages for all three if uh, you are interested. Big in Belgium, it is at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater coming up. And thanks a lot for joining us, Valentin Denez from Big Mouth and Doreen Saig, Manager of International and Special Projects at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Great talking with you both. Nice talking to you. Thanks. Thank you. Tomorrow, Worldview will have a Latin theme. We'll talk about Venezuela. We'll hear from a Honduran peasant organizer. And we'll also have uh, Global Notes. We'll talk about indigenous Central American music. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.